Well, a very good afternoon or morning or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of Reason for Hope. I am here to take your Bible questions for the next hour. Scott Richards will hopefully be joining us shortly, but in the meantime, I will filibuster with as much information you can use to get your questions to us until he arrives. If you'd like to send us your Bible questions by email, you can do so at questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you're, of course, able to watch us live, it's spelled out for you. But if you're listening on Reach Radio, one of our radio affiliates, or by audio through some unknown means, you can you can send us, of course, that question by questions for hope. That's questions, plural, F-O-R-Hope at gmail.com. Note as well, if you want to send us your questions through social media, you can engage with us face-to-face on YouTube at A Reason for Hope. Give us a subscribe, hit the notification bell, and of course, support us when and where you can. If you want to have notifications sent to you when we are going live and adjusting with the new time schedule, we'll of course be able to bless you, and you can be a blessing to us by engaging us or with us through that venue. Note as well, if you want to join us there, you'll also have access to our bi-weekly Bible studies, which will include, at the moment, going through the book of Esther and the book of Acts. I had the honor yesterday of going through a topical study on Valentine's Day, discussing the Trinity, no less. But, nonetheless, if you want to join us there, YouTube will give you that added benefit, not just of our daily Bible studies, but also, or actually not just our Daily Reason for Hope program, but also our bi-weekly Bible studies. I'll get the nouns right eventually. Same will be offered to you on Facebook, like on YouTube. When we are live streaming, you'll be notified. You can leave us your questions in the chat box on the live feed, or private message us directly if you want to take advantage of the, well, the simple uh, amenity of the inbox, where we can, of course, receive your questions just like we would through email addresses. If you'd prefer to circumvent social media entirely, you can join us on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. That's C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. There, you can click on the Watch Live tab at the top of the screen, and you will be able to engage with us in our own private chat box, and of course, to send your questions to us through the Ask Questions tab. That's all available and ready for you if you want to send us your questions, and noting that the standard for the questions we have on the broadcast will be sincere Bible questions. Sincere meaning that you want to hear the answer of the question you're asking. The, of course, uh, you made it. Hey. The, where are we in this? Sincere Bible, meaning that the substance of the question is both pertaining to the Bible and that the answer you're expecting will also include the Bible. And naturally, as well, if you want to send us a question, ask it in the form of one. We will be happy to receive your questions for the next hour, but before we get into all of that, we want to make sure that the Lord speaks more than we do. Take a moment to pray, and of course, we'll be updating you on current events as they come. So having joined us, Dan, would you like the honor? I would love that. Father, thank you so much uh, for watching out for us and being our shepherd, even when we as your sheep get a little scattered. I thank you, Father, that uh, your love and your faithfulness is always there for us. And I thank you, Lord, uh, that we can invite your presence here and know that you're going to minister your word and your life to people in ways that are just beyond our ability to uh, even anticipate or expect. Thank you for being such a wonderful, awesome God. And thank you, Lord, for loving people like us. Thank you for giving us the treasure of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Is true. All right, so anything to note, or can we get right to questions? Uh, well, uh, some interesting developments are definitely happening 
in Iran, uh, we'll just uh, leave it at that. Uh, there have been uh, four or five incidents where uh, major uh, elements of infrastructure in Iran have uh, suddenly gone, uh, to use the technical term, cattywampus. Uh, you know, nobody is saying sabotage except for the Iranians. Uh, there are those who are blaming the, uh, the explosion of some of these pipelines and refineries and, and different uh, major infrastructure points on uh, some of the uh, already existent uh, resistance to the Iranian regime. But uh, Israel has neither confirmed nor denied any involvement in these things. So I think what we're seeing is that things have really been heating up, uh, especially regarding Hezbollah in Lebanon. Uh, it does appear that uh, in light of the fact that there was a strike on uh, a uh, civilian target within uh, Israel that uh, resulted in casualties, that things are being stepped up a notch as far as the IDF's response to it. Hassan Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, has uh, said that uh, if only we could weaken Israel, then the uh, rest of the Middle East would be at peace. Well, translating that, if only we could uh, weaken Israel, uh, Hezbollah will have a chance of survival. So uh, what we're probably going to see is Israel uh, perhaps moving up the timetable in terms of uh, pushing uh, the forces of Hezbollah back across uh, the agreed-upon UN Resolution 1771 boundaries that uh, allow there to be like about a 25-mile buffer zone, a demilitarized zone between Israel and uh, the uh, forces of Iran, better known as Hezbollah. Uh, they have not followed them. Uh, the UN uh, uh, peacekeeping troops that are there essentially watch as Hezbollah does whatever it wants. Uh, so uh, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens there. The press for uh, Rafa is continuing apace. Uh, it seems that our State Department on the one side of the coin will make a positive uh, move and uh, say something the effect of, uh, well, uh, we support Israel's right to self-defense and uh, that includes dealing with the situation in Rafa, which is a very positive thing. Uh, but then they turn around and uh, are dropping major hints that uh, Israel, the uh, UK, and uh, Saudi Arabia, and some others, are going to lay out a peace treaty or a peace uh, settlement that will include giving the Palestinians their own state. Well, what's wrong with that? Well, first of all, uh, the vast majority of Palestinians are pro-Hamas. Poll after poll after poll has indicated that if there were free elections, even in the Palestinian Authority territories, the West Bank and so on, Hamas would be voted into power. By giving the Palestinians a state, you are rewarding them for the most brutal atrocities this side of the Holocaust. And so uh, Israel, it's a non-starter. They won't go for it. Uh, or should they? And uh, the uh, the uh, interesting thing is uh, the enemies of Israel uh, are playing, again, the long game. You remember Hassan Nasrallah's uh, remarks about a diminished Israel. If they can't defeat Israel, they can certainly diminish it. And one of the surest ways to diminish it is to uh, put Israel in a corner where it becomes alienated, say, from its major allies like the United States, uh, certainly Israel uh, will take care of itself, but uh, it would definitely be a step in the right direction as far as the terrorists go 
for Israel to no longer be able to call upon, say, a carrier group or something along that line uh, to dissuade, uh, say, a mass uh, launching of, uh, of weapons. And remember, uh, Hezbollah still has over 250,000 rockets at their disposal of vastly uh, higher sophistication than the ones that uh, Hamas has been using in Gaza. Uh, so uh, we'll keep an eye on what's happening in that uh, neck of the woods. Uh, any bulletins that come in as they break, we'll pass them along to you. But suffice it to say, it's very interesting how uh, Israel is turning up the uh, heat, if you will, on Iran. Iran is now uh, beginning to suffer some consequences for their terroristic adventurism in the world. How they respond to that is going to be very, very interesting. And how our government, which seems to, in a sense, be at the behest of Iran, uh, how that happens is, uh, is going to be interesting to watch. The other uh, incident that we wanted to uh, comment on was that uh, there was quite a stir that came out of Congress yesterday with uh, a leading congressman uh, on a, a major committee saying that there was a major uh, incident that has taken place that affects the entire security of the United States. It had something to do with space. Uh, there are those who have speculated that this means that Russia has perfected or has implemented a uh, nuclear-style uh, space platform that could take out, say, a huge amount of the United States uh, satellite infrastructure. Uh, the interesting thing about it all is, um, you know, with such a hysterical statement, the average person just kind of shrugged their shoulders and went, eh. you know, and, and I think that tells us something. It tells us that uh, the level of confidence that we have in our government uh, has uh, radically uh, diminished, uh, whether it's Republican or Democrat, uh, people are pretty well fed up at all the hijinks and uh, all the uh, two-tiered uh, forms of justice and so on. Uh, how this ends up getting resolved, I do not know. But once again, when people ask the question, why is the United States not mentioned in biblical prophecy? Obviously, we can't point to chapter and verse, but uh, we can obviously take a look at some trends and uh, ask ourselves the question, why is the United States there? Well, some believe we'll be taken out in limited war. Others believe that the rapture will leave us so decimated that the United States won't be able to recover and will lose its preeminent uh, position in the world. But uh, the other thing that uh, may be the most likely is that the United States is on the slide. Uh, just like uh, Great Britain at one point dominated the world, the sun never set on the British Empire. They had their day in the sun, couldn't keep it together, and pretty soon after a time, uh, faded to secondary, if not insignificant status. So the very same thing may be happening here with us. I think the reaction to such an over-the-top statement by a member of Congress, uh, barely mustering a shrug, uh, you know, is, is indicative of, of uh, the, uh, the fact that we are moving in that direction. Well, with that then... Got some questions already coming in, so let's get to them. A uh, question from Shar, who wants to know, if Hitler and the likes of him died as a baby, he would be in heaven. That's an interesting statement. The Bible says God in foreknowledge knows who will accept and reject, question mark. Okay. Is that why some babies die as miscarriages, so why them and not Hitler, question mark? 
thanks. All right. Well, let's piece this together. <laughs> that's uh, That's got some very interesting biblical issues tied into it. Well, we got, I think, if we're going to count four presumptions, two non-biblical conclusions, one non-biblical statement, and one use of the word Bible. So let's work with that. First of all, uh, using the most extreme reference possible, Hitler, already we're in emotionally manipulated territory. And I'm not saying that Shar's trying to be manipulative here, but when people are in this kind of conversation... Or maybe she was asked a question by someone that dropped the H-bomb, if you will. Yeah, and note yeah. that already this conversation's not going to go anywhere because the intent of bringing up someone like Hitler is to say the worst possible, the worst imaginable now, let's see if you, in your twisted worldview, can spin this in a positive light. Now, let's try to make God, who you view as the ultimate good, to be spinned in Hitler's favor. And no matter what the context, no matter what the pretext, no matter what the circumstance that conversation goes, God's being used to justify Hitler. That's when these conversations come up. That's what you're trying to, that's what the individual who asked this question originally is trying to pin this conversation ultimately into. Now, when it comes to why Hitler is brought up, obviously it's because the uh, head political figure of the National Aryan Socialist Party of Nazi Germany in 1940 was, in fact, a horrible human being. But when we ask other examples, like Joseph Stalin, who has a political party in socialism, we ask for people like Anton LaVey, the founder of Satanism, or, yeah, uh, when we ask for individuals like Jim Jones, who was a communist and tried to found a cult in his own image and name, or Charles Manson, these names aren't brought up. Why? because they're not as emotionally loaded, they're not brought up to the common perspective in man. Okay, so let's bring up a name that is biblically relevant here, um, contrary to those of you who may be Nostradamus fans, uh, Adolf Hitler is not mentioned in biblical prophecy. Okay. But there is another individual uh, that would fit the very same uh, uh, kind of territory of question that Shar is wrestling with here. Manasseh? Uh, I would say Judas Iscariot. Okay. Um, people will ask the question, okay, why did Jesus choose a guy like Judas Iscariot to be one of his disciples? In the book of Matthew, chapter 26 and verse 24, uh, Jesus said, the Son of Man will go just as it's written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Well, there we get down to the gist of Shar's question about uh, God preempting, say, certain people's lives uh, along this line. I think where we get off track, and I think even the life of Judas Iscariot can, uh, can illustrate this, is that Jesus uh, straight up said that statement about it would be better for him if he had never been born in the hearing of who? Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot. Uh, when uh, Jesus had the Last Supper, one of the ways to show who the beloved guest of honor was at a uh, Passover Seder was to give him the first morsel that was dipped in the dish. Which was an incredible position of honor. Yeah, who does Jesus give that morsel to? Judas, Judas Iscariot. When Judas leads the mob to betray Jesus, the first words out of Jesus' mouth to Judas uh, was the word friend. friend. Uh, he even allowed Judas to kiss him uh, in that particular 
interaction. So here we have some things that we've got to work through. Did God, in fact, know that Jesus was going to be betrayed? Yes. Uh, did Jesus know that it was going to be Judas? Yes. yes. Did that in any way, shape, or form abrogate the fact that at any given point along this way, Judas had a choice as to whether to betray Jesus or not? No. Because if it was as Jesus, as some will, uh, will portray this sort of thing, just absolutely predetermined, Judas was this wind-up toy, awful betrayer, you go and do your thing, then why all these overtures? Why all these friendly gestures? Why every single conceivable opportunity to say, turn back from the madness that you are about to embark in? Why create him in the first place? Yeah. So here's what we're left with, right? The fact that we have prophecy and that certain things were foreordained does not excuse Judas or absolve him from the punishment he would suffer on his part for the decisions that he himself made as a result of his free choice and his free will. And now here we come down to the, uh, the timeless debate. Uh, is it God's sovereignty that determines the destiny of men, or is it man's free will? You know what the Bible's answer is? Yes. Yes, it's a both and, not an either or. So I guess bringing this back to uh, the dropping the H-bomb, the Hitler bomb or something like this. Why didn't uh, Hitler just die in a miscarriage if he was going to get up to all of that? Because in the foreknowledge of God, Hitler would also have opportunities just like everyone else to make spiritual choices. He could say yes or no to a relationship with God. Did God know what Hitler would do with his free choice and his free will? Obviously, in his foreknowledge, he did. But does God know what we're going to do with our, for, uh, with our uh, free will and his foreknowledge? Yeah. Uh, you know, when people ask that question, you know, why doesn't God, say, put an end to evil? Why doesn't he turn bullets into rubber? Why doesn't he intervene and, uh, and save individuals who are about to be the victims of some violent situation? In the way I'd prefer him to. Right. Because the idea that God isn't dealing with evil means he won't deal with evil is completely absurd. Right. But the fact that God's not dealing with evil in my way. In example, my timing. Yeah, right. see the rubber bullets, see the prevention, see all these other things. Right. It's a total non sequitur because just like with the emotionally loaded language of Hitler in the conversation, what's intended to be accomplished in this isn't deeper philosophical thought about the purpose of life. Right. It's to make the author of life out to be the author of evil because life includes evil and it's still here. The opposite is in fact the case because we see a working moral agent who in spite of our evil is accomplishing great good. Now we don't see the end of it because he does. <laughs> He's the all-knowing entity and we are less than that. But also building on that point, if we're asking the purpose of creation, there's a lot of presumption loaded into these things. Again, firstly noting, when we're dealing with this point by point, the first presumption is, okay, let's go with the most negative example that the most amount of people will react to emotionally rather than intellectually. Let's change that. We focused on Judas Iscariot. For the sake of this conversation, let's focus on me, okay? I'm a sinner. 
I'm fallen and have fallen short of the glory of God. I have willfully rebelled against God despite everything that I know. My actions have impacted the lives and emotional and physical well-being of myself and those around me. I deserve hell. Okay? So with that then in mind, if God and the, or if Sean rather and the likes of him died as a baby, he would be in heaven. Once again, is that a presumption? We'll get to that more in a moment. The Bible says that God in foreknowledge, which we've answered, knows who will accept and reject, question mark. Apart from the conjoined sentence, what's the other issue in that? That God foreknew, that also means he forecaused. This is a position that not even people that would emphasize sovereignty over free will, the idea that God knows in advance. Right would, of course, admit to. This is called double predestination, that God decides who goes to hell, which would be in fundamental conflict with his nature. He doesn't decide who's separate from him. He recognizes our decisions and, catch this, respects them. So Sean's decisions were respected, and he wasn't reduced to a charcoal briquette. That says more about God in a positive sense than me in a negative, because guess who made the decisions that deserve the charcoal briquette? This guy. Yeah. So building then on that point again, in foreknowledge knows who will accept and reject. Is that why, now noting the attributing of motive to God, some babies die as miscarriages? Now, when we're talking about this issue that countless mothers and fathers throughout the world and throughout history are suffering with and asking, why couldn't we be given the honor of stewarding this child? Why did they have to die before we even got the chance to meet them in this sense? Why is this language being used? It's just like with Hitler, it's being used to emotionally manipulate, not to intellectually examine. Why do babies die before they're born? Why does fill-in-the-blank example of evil and heartache, emotionally loaded terms? Again, we need to avoid this. So what's the actual issue at the heart? Why are people born? Why does this world continue to exist in a state separate from God to a limited degree. If the Holy Spirit would withdraw himself, according to Job 34, everything would turn to dust, so yeah. God's involved in some way. But why does God allow the perpetuation of suffering, or more accurately, things I don't like, in a way where, of course, he's not dealing with them in the ways that I would like? Well, now it sounds silly, but it's just as silly, it's just as loaded, it's just as much a setup as the Hitler conversation and the miscarriage topic. So let's actually deal with this at its heart. When we're talking about, and I'll note this into two points here, we're talking about why we were born, not trying to get women and men angry at the idea that God caused my miscarriage, but why were these children born? Well, we read in Acts chapter 17, God's purpose for births, <laughs> yeah. and this is very straightforward. In verse 26, he said, he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. So God made us and intended to. It wasn't an accident. And determined their pre-appointed times when they were born and the boundaries of their dwellings where they were born. So we got time and space under God's control, as far as we're concerned. Yeah. So whether or not it was Hitler, or even worse, it was me. When we were born and how we were born was in the control of God. But for what purpose? So that six million Jews would be killed? No. It goes on to say what? So that, verse 27, they should seek the Lord. Not that they would, but that they should. Now what's the difference apart from a consonant? 
it's moral opportunity right as opposed to intellectual opportunity right anyone could know that god exists but the idea that we would seek the lord and in a personal way which we'll go on to explain is in fact god's intention for when and where we were born so if you think you know i was born in the wrong generation first of all examine the medical records of those times and say you know if i was only born in the 1400s i could be a knight yeah and then you'd die from dysentery but the point we made is that when we're talking about when and where we were born, it was no accident to whom we were born into. Why does God allow children to be born into Muslim homes? That means they're going to be a Muslim. Not necessarily. No more than people born into Christian homes means they're going to be a Christian. It's an individual decision basis, and that's what he says. Notice this. That we might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. So Paul, speaking to the Athenians, says what? You guys recognize this, and you guys don't know the Bible from a phone book, or the Theogony in this case, right? He's quoting a pagan poet that was originally written as a poem to Zeus. It was um, Diotrephes, right? Epimenides. Epimenides, thank you. So when we're talking about the issue of why was this person born? Why wasn't this person born? It ultimately ties back into the idea that, okay, God's put me here for a reason. I either have the opportunity to pursue him and live for him or not, and I'll be held accountable for that. That's justice and grace. But let's also take it the stat further. If God's priority is also, this is the fourth assumption that we were pointing out earlier, or that I did anyway, you can distance yourself from the (laughs) reprimand here. But the assumption is that God's intention is for everyone to get to heaven. Now, once again, would that be good? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. But would that be possible, given free moral agency, that everyone would make the exact same decision? No. No, and that's the point. In this world that we're living in, the idea that God would create in the first place left him philosophically, there's other possibilities, I'm sure, but four main possible worlds he could have created. First, given what we know about God, he could have created no world at all. That would reflect something about his character. He only wanted good to exist. And since he's the fullness of everything that is good, then not creating anything apart from him would accomplish Even angels. Yeah. Yeah. So there would be no evil. If God's highest priority was in the preservation of good, the maintaining of all that is goodness, he would not have created in the first place. But we see a world that was created, so that's not God's highest priority. doesn't mean God doesn't want there to be good, but it means he had something else in mind when he created us. So no world is not an option. We have a world. The second option is that God would have created a world, but with the priority, not of the impossibility of evil, right, but the manifestation of perfection. He wants the creation to be exactly as he intended it. Think of the utilitarian mindset, right? I want things to work. I want this place to be scientific and functional and last. That would be a priority of an artist, right? Mm -hmm. I want to make something so that it's not going to get broken, (laughs) or an engineer maybe. But we see a world that got broken, So obviously that wasn't God's highest priority. He wasn't doing it with the highest priority of artistry or function and engineering. 
What else could he have done? He could have created a world where his justice was his highest priority, that the bad guys get punished, that the miscarriages ultimately are answered for, that the Hitlers are destroyed before they have a chance to be born, or at least die before they have a chance to become Hitler, or even worse, that Sean has the chance to become Sean. But that's not the world we live in, is right. it? We saw a world where Adam and Eve weren't struck dead the moment that they introduced evil through their actions into all of our lives, and, of course, made that choice where God provided mercy for them. So where is his priorities at? Obviously not with the highest priority, justice. Now, am I saying that God's not a good being? Am I saying God's not a creative being? Am I saying that God's not a just being? No, I'm saying what's his highest priority? The world we live in today, where the allowance of evil, of things like miscarriages, like Hitler, and worst of all, things like Sean, can exist, but also opportunities for what? The highest possible good. A free will choice, a love-based choice, right. a God's nature-based choice to reciprocate and restore, our not restore ourselves, but be restored to what he created us to be in the first place. That's where God's highest priority is at. Now, if reality, the world that we live in today, where there is the permitting of ultimate evil, but also the allowance, the possibility of ultimate good, all we're seeing is a God who played by the rules he wrote and also played fair. Because do we know a God that doesn't know what it's like to be uh, trying to pair up the exact phrasing of Hebrews chapter 4, to be touched with our infirmities, who's, who's been tempted in all ways as we are? Absolutely. Yeah, we do. Yeah. God was not a God who distanced himself from our pain, but voluntarily became a part of it. He suffered more than anyone in history ever has or could. Now you're saying, oh, so you're saying that he knows what he's like to fill in the blank? Yeah. Not obviously in the same way, but in his own way. Does he know what it's like to be humiliated? Well, he left heavenly glory to be taken care of by two peasants. That's pretty humiliating. Does he know what it's like to be betrayed? All of his friends abandoned him, and one sold him out to a mob for the bare-bones price of a slave all in the same night. That's pretty ruthless as far as being betrayed is concerned. Does he know what he'd like to be physically hurt? Yes. <laughs> you know, you endured the most brutal method of execution in history. Right. Does he know what it's like to be poor? Yes. He has, He basically spent his earthly ministry as a couch surfer and reminded people that were following him. Birds have nests. Um, what was it? Foxes, Foxes have dens. Yeah. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He was homeless. Does he know what it's like to be fill in the blank? The idea is just that. So if the focus is on Hitler, it's not a goodwill conversation because you're trying to maximally influence emotional impact. But if the conversation's about Jesus, suddenly the actual revelation of God's character is being brought into focus. So if this was talking, uh, spoken to from someone who was trying to bring this up as a conversation, it wasn't a good conversation because none of these things end up going anywhere. But if, on the other hand, we kind of dissect ideas, and if you have the chance, Char, to talk with this person in the future, best-case scenario, bring yourself into the conversation like I did. No, I'm, I'm worse than Hitler because I'm actually still here. Do you, do you know what potential for evil I still have? <laughs> Apart from the grace of God, there go I. Do you understand that? But why wasn't I, you know, destroyed by some time traveler and spared all of world history and various comedy movies and so forth? The point of emphasis is that less on what about this worst case example instead let's look at the best case example when god created this world he entered it 
When God saw this world walk away from him, he restored it. When God saw a world reject him, he allowed it. That says more, and we said this I said this before, we'll say it again. That says more about his goodness and patience than about my capacity for not himness. Yeah. And that's the point. So don't make out God to be a Hitler supporter. Make us out to be Jesus supporters. That's a more worthwhile conversation to have. Yeah, I think uh, the other thing that comes up in that conversation is this, um, you know, the idea, why doesn't God do away with all evil? Why didn't God just have Hitler die in a miscarriage or something like this? Um, well, kind of it's the theory of uh, the lightning bolt. Why doesn't he just take anyone who's thinking about evil out with a lightning bolt? Well, uh, a friend of mine, Cliff Connectley, who is a uh, traveling evangelist with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, does open-air evangelism on college campuses, uh, once put it this way, uh, and I never forgot it, he said, if God were to eliminate all evil at midnight tonight, how many of us would be around to discuss it at 12.01? But God is patient not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's what the scripture says. So that uh, allows, uh, in, his, uh, in his patience and his forbearance, some pretty crazy things and some pretty uh, horrible exercises of the free will and capacity of man to take place. But there's also a judgment day. And at judgment day, God's perfect justice is going to be manifested for those people. My two cents worth is this. Don't approach God asking for justice because that's what you'll get. I run into people all the time who will say to me, well, all I want from God is what's coming to me. No, you don't. <laughs> what you really want is mercy. What you want is grace. And, uh, and that's what God provides. And he also provides us enough latitude to run into this grace. We, man we mentioned a guy whose name was Manasseh, the longest reigning king in the kingdom of Judah. He had the longest reign. He was also the, one of the most wicked kings that Israel ever knew. According to Jewish tradition, he was the guy who stuffed Isaiah in a log and sawed him in half. He offered his own kids in the altar to Molech. He did yeah. everything wrong. And, and so this longest living king, over 50 years of a reign, right? Um, at the end of it, the Assyrians come in and haul him off into captivity with, a, with an iron hook in his nose. Could you imagine being dragged uh, mile upon mile upon mile with someone yanking on the soft tissue in your nose. Well, while he was in prison, Manasseh repented. He turned back to God at the end of his life. And, and so I'm sure there were times if you had been, say, one of the disciples of Isaiah and had seen this atrocity taking place where you might have said, God, why don't you strike this guy with a lightning bolt? And God says, I'm going to deal with him. You trust him to me. Uh, okay, has his own kids uh, burned as sacrifices to the awful idols. Uh, why, why, do, why do you allow that, God? Why don't, why don't you cause the uh, fire to consume him? God says, I've got a plan. I've got a purpose. He ain't and getting in, away with anything. And in Manasseh's case, uh, he ended up repenting. Some people say, well, you're telling me that if Hitler had repented, he would have been in heaven? Yeah, because Jesus, as the evangelist Billy Sunday once put it, doesn't save to the uttermost, he saves the guttermost. He died for all of the sins of the world, uh, and if anybody would avail himself of Jesus' forgiveness, he would find it. Thief on the cross, a guy who openly admitted that he lived his life in such a way that he deserved crucifixion. Uh, turned to Jesus, and Jesus said, truly I'll say, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. So uh, don't approach God on the basis 
of justice. Uh, some people say, well, I keep the Ten Commandments. When they say that, I say, well, you just blew one of them. Thou shalt not bear false witness. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but God made a way for us to be forgiven because he loved us and he willingly, in the person of Jesus Christ, took our place, died on a cruel Roman cross to pay the price for all of our sins. Not just, you know, the sort of socially acceptable sins, falling asleep in a sermon, that sort of thing. No, he died for the worst sins. He took them all upon himself. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that's too good an offer to turn down. Oh, uh, great question from Terry. They want to know what happens when you die. Now, this is specifically from a Christian perspective because they've heard several views. Do, they go, do we go to heaven? Do we go to sleep until the rapture and then rise? Please clarify. So the question is about soul sleep. What is the biblical view of the state we call separation from our body, physical death, and you know, what happens next? You know, I just love going for the jugular on this question because the Bible really does direct it, uh, address it uh, pretty directly. In the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, Paul has already talked about uh, we don't lose heart, though our outward man is perishing, yet our inward man is being renewed day by day. Uh, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working in us a far exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So what Paul is saying is the reason I keep going in this crazy life is because I realize that there's a heaven ahead of us. Okay, what is that going to look like? How do we enter into all of that? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1 says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So here we see the basis of the Christian hope, that God does have a resurrection body ahead for us. There's not like this tent that we live in today. I don't know how many of you are camping fans out there. Uh, me, uh, I, I spent so much time doing camping and stuff like that when I was in youth and college ministry. I kind of got it out of my system. But, uh, you know, the idea of camping is great for the first few days, but after living in a tent for about a week, you kind of uh, desire the old comforts of home, like a warm shower and air conditioning and things. Uh, you know, again, a tent can only keep you uh, safe for a while. And uh, Paul says our body's like a tent. It starts fraying around the edges. It loses the ability to be able to sustain us. But the good news is we have a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this, this body that we live in now, we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life. In other words, uh, what the scripture is saying is, is that when we die, we aren't just uh, ooky spooky ethereal spirits. Uh, we're going to have an actual resurrection body, just like Jesus had a resurrection body, which is a very important thing to understand. Now, notice what else it says, that, that uh, mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who's also given us the spirit as a guarantee. In other words, the Christian has hope, a living hope, that this world ain't all there is, and that as malfunctioning and as pain-producing as these bodies are, it's a temporary situation. God has the ultimate upgrade for us. So we are always confident 
knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Now, notice uh, the whole issue. What happens to us when we die? The moment we die, the moment we breathe our last, if you will, we are told that we are immediately in the presence of God. Another interesting scripture that confirms the consciousness that we're going to have beyond the uh, moment of our death is in Luke 16, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Both the rich man and Lazarus, when they died, were immediately conscious and aware of their surroundings. There was no uh, going to sleep. When Jesus died on the cross and said to the thief on the cross, truly this day you will be with me in paradise. He didn't say, you're going to go to sleep for a while, but don't worry, it's just going to seem like an instant, then you'll be in my presence. And it would be completely inappropriate to think Jesus was withholding information on account of a lack of breath. Yeah. So, um, and that's one of the excuses that's usually given yeah. for all of that. So the, 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 the bottom line is uh, those who teach soul sleep will say, but doesn't the scripture say we will not all sleep, we all will all be changed in 1 Corinthians 15. Well, yeah, it does say that. But what is refer- being referred to as sleeping? Well, you go to the book of Acts and you see examples of people using this as a synonym for physical death. For example, when Stephen was being stoned, when it says that he fell asleep after seeing Jesus stand up to receive him at the right hand of God, it wasn't as if one of the rocks happened to you know, hit the central plate in his head and he fortunately was unconscious for the rest of the event. He physically died. Right. It was referring to that. When we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where it notes, we shall not all sleep, those who sleep in Christ, it's referencing, and not a ongoing status, but an immediate question of those who have physically died. When we see this trend of the term sleep being used, it's physically, those who sleep in Jesus, meaning what? Those who have died. Yeah, those the who body asleep. sleeps. Not the spirit. And that's why we started the question with the statement, those who have been physically separated from their bodies. Right. That's what death means. So when we're talking about this, it's the linguistics of it that we're being specific with. Yeah, and if you ever go to an open casket funeral, inevitably, uh, if the funeral home does their job properly, someone will come up and they'll look at the guest of honor and they'll say something effective. Oh, look, it looks like they're sleeping. Well, what's sleeping? It's the body, not the soul, right? Uh, the body turns to dust. And that would answer a question that might be on a lot of people's minds. Well, if instantaneously we're with the Lord, why is it that when Christians die, their body hangs around here? Well, their body, in a sense, is asleep. It's going to be awakened again when uh, they have need of a resurrection body. We believe that this is going to happen concurrently with the rapture of the church. That doesn't mean that those who are in heaven are disembodied spirits. They have a, uh, a body that will allow them to be able to function and interact while they're in heaven, a spiritual body. But uh, when Jesus is going to come back, he's not coming back alone. Uh, we we're told the armies of heaven followed him in uh, white garments and white linen, uh, clean and bright. Uh, earlier in uh, Revelation 19, we were told that the white linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So uh, those who come back with Jesus are going to need to interact with this physical world again. That's what a body basically allows us to do. It allows us as essentially spiritual beings to interact with the physical world. Those who are in heaven, a spiritual place, have no need for these physical bodies that we have that we carry around with us right now and are in the process of decaying. 
However, when Jesus rose from the dead, he had a resurrection body that would not know decay or anything else or pain or, or anything like that ever again. We're going to get the exact same model, if you will, because we're going to come back and interact with this physical world when Jesus returns again. So let us know if that helps. Uh, real quick, Bob wants to know, does God know who the last person who will be saved is? Uh, read 1 John chapter 3 and verse 30. If, uh, our heart condemns us. God knows our heart and knows all things. There are other examples of God being omniscient, but it's noting you know all things. The last person to get saved would be included in that. Let us know if that helps. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's a great answer to that question because uh, there's never been an unplanned spiritual birth in the kingdom of God. Uh, God didn't look at you, Bob, and say, uh, oh my gosh, Bob became a Christian. Hey, Gabe, check that out. I'm really shocked. No, he knew, you know, and uh, he chose you before the foundation of the world, and he loved you uh, before you were a twinkle in your mama's eye. Yep. Uh, question from Mac. Uh, he had an experience that frustrated him, and the quote is, is it okay to be angry even to the point of hating that person? Now, this would be an example of being angry and sinning. So how do we be angry and sin, or and not sin, as Ephesians 5 would tell us to do? Yeah, uh, probably the best thing, and you know, again, the incident that uh, Mac describes here, I guess, seemed like a uh, person was kind of coming on to him and uh, behaving in an inappropriate way, and it was kind of morally re repulsive to him, and it just really bothered him. You know, well, let's face it, when someone invades our spiritual space, when someone especially makes a unwelcome gesture of intimacy, um, we call that abuse uh, in ways large and small. And so I totally get the fact that you would have that particular reaction, especially if you come out of a background where maybe you've experienced uh, this, this sort of thing, and it's an incredibly damaging and uh, incredibly devastating uh, cross to bear, if you will. But you know, there's a fascinating passage that we find in the book of Romans chapter 12. In uh, Romans chapter 12, uh, the Apostle Paul uh, writing there uh, says this in verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you'll heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, what, what is good in this set of circumstances? Well, the greatest good that this world has ever seen is described in the book of Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. God demonstrates his own love for us, and that while we we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrated to us forgiveness and grace when we were at our worst. And so, Mac, if uh, the definition of being a Christian is being a little Christ, uh, and God's great goal for your life and my life is to take us and conform us to the image of his son, so he might be the firstborn among many brethren, as uh, Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 puts it. Here you've got an opportunity to be like Jesus. Here's a person that has violated your boundaries personally, uh, that has done something that is offensive towards you, maybe even with some kind of sexual overtones involved with all of it. Here's an opportunity for you not to allow that person, Mac, to have control over your life. But instead, you, you honestly go 
with, say, maybe the sense of revulsion, the sense of pain that you might feel, maybe the sense of, of recalling memories from the past. You bring it to God and say, God, this one is way, way, way too much for me to handle. You better handle this. I give my emotions in this because, you know, I, I just hate this person for, for what they've done to me. You know, I, I can think of a situation in my life uh, where I was trying to do the right thing and I was trying to forgive some people that had really treated me very horribly. And, uh, you know, long story short, uh, an incident happened that brought it all back up again. And I had to be honest with God. I just said, I hate these people. I, I hate them for what they've done to me. I hate anything good that happens to them. I just, I have no love in my heart for them. I hate them. I just have to be honest with you. And when I finally got done saying that, this calm came over me. And this picture of Jesus uh, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane kind of came to mind, which was odd because I hadn't really read that passage or thought about it. But uh, the scripture says that when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was sweating, as it were, great drops of blood, and an angel was sent to strengthen him. And it suddenly dawned on me, if Jesus needed the strengthening of an angel to do what was right in his earthly life, what made me think that somehow I could, from my own emotional and personal and experiential resources, somehow muster the strength to be able to be forgiving? You know, I, I realized something. Jesus had already forgiven these people. And so it didn't turn down the thermostat on the emotion I was feeling at that moment. But I said, okay, Lord, you know how I feel. I can't kid you. You know the condition of my heart. Um, but I'm willing for you to forgive these people through me. I believe you already died for it, paid them the You said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Uh, forgive them through me. And it was just the most amazing thing. I just felt like a hundred pound weight went off my shoulder. I felt him take the sword from my hand. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to quote Ben-Hur. Yeah. But uh, the, the most wonderful thing about all of that was, you know, it wasn't like this snap of the fingers and now I've just, oh, I've thought nothing but wonderful. You know, I, it was a process. Uh, you know, the thoughts about these people would come back and I'd start to feel that bubbling hatred again. And, you know, I'd say, okay, Lord, there it is again. Please just love these people through me. And, and, uh, you know, I'd find myself praying for him and I would find myself praying some pretty lousy prayers for him. Lord, um, uh, you be good to them, but you've been good to me and you haven't let me get away with anything. So don't let them get away with anything either. And finally, it just kind of, after a while, it just morphed into, Lord, just love them. You know, what a, what an awful existence it must be to behave in the way that they have and, you know, not even be conscious of what they've done. Lord, just deal with them, bring them close to you. And then finally, I just didn't even have any qualifiers. I just said, Lord, just bless them. And I think when I finally got to the point of, Lord, just bless them, I think I realized something. I was free. They weren't running my life. Uh, my emotions weren't running my life. Jesus was running my life. And Jesus said, if the Son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. So look at this. Uh, I know it wasn't a pleasant experience for you, Mac. But look at this as an opportunity uh, for the Lord to show you what real freedom in Jesus, the freedom to forgive, the freedom to love people who aren't very lovable, uh, the, the freedom not to be controlled and dominated by bad experiences that have happened from the past, uh, you know, the, the, the freedom from judging other people. There's one judge of, of all the earth. We're not him. Uh, you know, when we encounter that freedom, man, those, the, that 100-pound weight goes off our shoulders. And uh, we, we discover the, a little bit more of that abundant life that Jesus had for us. All right. Um, question from G, who wants to know what... Oh, that's my 
remote, by the way. Oh, okay. oh. <laughs> uh, what okay. are your thoughts on people who post their testimonies on the internet or on sketchy religious platforms? Uh, what are some things to watch out for to note for sincerity? They gave a specific example, but there's a million of those things. So when it comes to specifics as opposed to broad strokes, uh, the best way to discern a phony testimony as opposed to a legitimate testimony is the same thing that we're going to read in First Thessalonians chapter 5, 19 through 21. Anyone who's sharing a testimony, a work of God, how God got a hold of their life, yeah. is obviously going to fall in line with the way God works in any sense or circumstance. It's going to be in alignment with His Word. Now, there's three ways to do that. I'm not saying in a positive sense for every one, but those in conflict with God's Word, which we should avoid, those in general that aren't for or against God's Word, which I don't accept, but I also wouldn't proactively deny. I, I wouldn't receive it, but I wouldn't also say God's not beyond those things. And then third would be one that are just basically taken out of the Bible. So let's start with the positive. Nabil Qureshi in his testimony, when yeah. he came oh, to boy. know the Lord, yeah. he came from a very hyper-spiritualistic background, a sect of Islam that was essentially how Muslims would view as to Mormons would be to Christians, but nonetheless a very peaceful sect, and they still call for the extermination of the Jews, by the way, but as far as things go. and <laughs> As peaceful as it gets. <laughs> God knew him and his background well enough to know they pay a lot of attention to dreams. And so when he and his uh, friend David Wood were interacting with each other on spiritual matters, when it started to make a little progress, when he started to poke his uh, view of Muhammad as the perfect moral man and saying, you know, he in, in, had intimacy with a nine-year-old girl, right? That, of course, shook his faith, but he wouldn't let him show it. God started sending him dreams, and one was taken copy and paste out of the parables where he was sitting at a dinner feast, or of course David was sitting at the feast, and Abiel said, we were supposed to meet, and David responded to him, you haven't accepted the invitation. And he looked around at the room, and there were crosses everywhere, and on and on it goes. But the idea of there being a personal prophecy for Nabil, I look at it, I look at scripture, and I see a one-to-one -one association. I'm going okay, I think that that legitimately happened, because that is in line with God's work. I right. have every reason to believe Nabil's testimony. Right. Now, there's another individual who I won't name, because it's in the exact opposite negative camp, who would say, you know, I went to heaven, or I went to hell, and it was like this physical thing, and this physical experience, and these physical phenomena, and when I saw my mansion... I would, of course, see I had all these rooms, and my ministry was so successful. The Apostle Paul came out of his mansion and pointed out how his was bigger than mine, and that's why you should give to me. That's the, the whole shebang. Well, first of all, in my house are many mansions. That's a reference to the glorified body, right? not a physical dwelling place in the heavenly realms. So he's misrepresenting Scripture there. Secondly, the idea of self-aggrandizement, whatever. But the third, and this is what's also most key, someone who went to heaven and couldn't shut up about it, I have direct scriptural reference to someone who went into the presence of the Lord, not the new heavens and new earth, but the presence of the Lord, the third heaven. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, what does he say? I couldn't say anything. I couldn't put it into words. He says it would be a crime if I tried to express them in words. So in conflict with Scripture, I think that this individual and his testimony is fraudulent. Why? God doesn't speak contrary to his word. Right. And yeah. someone by the Holy Spirit was brought into the presence of God and shut up. 
<laughs> so if someone go, claims to say, oh, I went, spent seven minutes in hell, I don't buy any of it because it's in direct contradiction yeah. to what the Bible says about those things. Now let's go into the middle ground, your example. Check. <laughs> note for the positives, note for the negatives. That's where I think you should meet yourself. Now, is it true? Uh, again, I don't uh, have the individual in front of me, but let's just note that his testimony included maybe a miracle claim or two, maybe this uh, in scientific insight and so forth that his experience is more associated with that mine wouldn't be. I don't know. Whether it's contrary to or positive to, I'll let you look into that. But do so with an open Bible. Do so with those passages that they reference or associated with in full context, and then ask yourself, does this line up? Because if not, then throw it out. Yeah, and like you mentioned, First Thessalonians chapter 5 and, uh, and verse 18 says, don't quench the spirit, yeah. uh, don't despise prophecies, test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Uh, one of the things I think we have to be careful about uh, in personal testimonies is, man, I love hearing a good salvation story. Uh, there's a book called Harvest that talks about how uh, the initial uh, hippies that got saved in the Jesus movement came to know the Lord, and it's just a, it's a page-turner. It's just wonderful to see how God worked in those sets of circumstances. But any testimony that is going to be valid uh, is going to, A, end up giving glory to Jesus. People aren't going to walk away going, wow, what a wonderful human being. They're going to say, wow, what a wonderful Savior. And B, it's not going to cause us to become addicted to just so stories and sensationalistic claims. It's going to cause us to look at the scripture and understand the scripture and have a more consistent foundation in the word of God uh, than just someone's experience. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's word. One question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.